in a typical year, you know, we have about 20 billion that matures. Uh, that typically is about like a 40% payoff rate due to refinancing or asset sales, and we're not seeing that. And so it's no surprise that you know, recycling of capital is not happening, uh, which is causing a lot of institutions not to be able to originate. So when we started you know, 2023, um, that 40% payoff rate went to about 2%. So again, said another way, 98% of the maturing debt is sticking around, and we're doing the right thing. We're showing up for our clients. We are modifying transactions, but... To me, that kind of funnels into the crisis, the headlines, um, what we're all going through. Hello and welcome to another episode of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio, Thank you for joining us. Today we're replaying our August 24th Market Matters event entitled Navigating the Lending Environment. The panel discussion was moderated by Rob Bowlby of Global Pro and featured insights from Darcy Barnes of Bank of America, Tom Burns of Affinius Capital, and Paul Geyer of PGIM Real Estate. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to recognize and thank our Market Matters sponsors, Grant Thornton, Global Pro, and DCEO. Be sure to subscribe to the show if you're listening to us for the first time and follow Trek and Trek Community Investors on social media for the latest news and updates from around the two organizations. Now, here's a replay of Market Matters Navigating the Lending Environment right here on TrackCast. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're glad to be back in the, the thick of the fall. Hopefully the weather cooperates. I know football, high school football starts tonight. We're excited to get the market back together, and uh, I think today will be a great program to, to hear about what's ahead here this fall. So let's get going. Um, this is our Market Matters 2 speaker series um, entitled Navigating the Lending Environment. So We've enjoyed a great programs over the year of 2023. We started off with Tom Gillardi, uh, owner of the Stars, in January. We went to Michael Dardick and Adam Sapphire in March. And then we had the great Troy Aikman in May. And so we're going to cap it off here for our last Market Matters breakfast uh, with a great group of professionals uh, to talk about the lending environment. So next up, just remember, uh, we do have our final speaker series in November uh, with Mark Gibson in our Capital Markets Update. So that's always a, a dandy of an event, so we're excited about that. And please let us know, or my, myself or Travis Reynolds, if you'd like to be a sponsor for that event as well. We're going to be meeting at the Omni, and we have many seats available. So I think we can sit up to five, 600. All right. Why don't our guests come to the stage and so first off, I'd like to introduce uh, Darcy Barnes. She's with Bank of America, and I'll be quick here because there's a lot to introduce. Um, Darcy is a Southwest Regional Market Executive for the Commercial Real Estate Banking Division of Bank of America. 
She has held various roles within commercial real estate and has extensive background in origination, structuring, and documentation of debt financing for real estate sponsors. Darcy is a board member of the Real Estate Council, a Trek ALC graduate, and also helped launch the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board with Trek. Darcy is a BBA graduate from Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, with degrees in marketing and computer science. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Tom Burns with Affinius Capital. Tom is Managing Director and is responsible for sourcing, negotiating, and structuring transactions focused on Texas and Western U.S. He originates bridge, construction, and fixed-rate life company loans with production in excess of $1 billion annually. Tom is engaged with organizations that includes Catholic-affiliated charities such as Christ the King School, Folsom Institute of Real Estate at SMU, Christo Ray Dallas, and Men's Guild of Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Tom is a graduate of Vanderbilt in economics and a master's in real estate development from Columbia. Thank you, Tom, for being here. Um, Paul Geyer, right here. Uh, Paul is with PGIM. He's managing director and oversees the Dallas office focused on originating broad range of commercial mortgage products on behalf of investors, credential general accounts, and debt funds. He has more than 30 years experience in commercial real estate finance and previously worked on loan teams with J.P. Morgan, Nomura, and Prudential. Paul's a graduate of DePauw University, we'll make sure again, it's not DePaul, DePauw, in Greencastle, Indiana, majoring in economics and MBA from the University of Chicago. Thank you, Paul, for being here. And lastly, our moderator, mm -hmm. Rob Bulby. Rob is president of Global Pro Texas, which represents insurance policyholders with a signature process to maximize recovery of property damage claims against insurance providers. He has enjoyed a 29 career, uh, 29 year career with BB&T Bank, and most recently being the market president in Miami, Florida. He moved from Miami to Dallas in 2019 to start up. Global Pro and is involved with YPO, Trek, on the uh, and also the executive chairman of Big Brothers Big Sisters Lone Star. Rob is a graduate of West Virginia with a degree in finance. So we've got East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast. Sorry, West Coast. So let us welcome Darcy, Tom, Paul, and Rob. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Bill. So as they mentioned, Mark Gibson's gonna be here in the fall, and I guess he's gonna give kind of the macro overview of the capital markets. This is gonna be a lot closer. This is actually how do I get a loan right now, which I think is a really relevant topic for the people in this room. Um, and so I, I sit with Bill on the programs committee, and we actually started talking about this um, in the spring, right after we had the bank failures of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and Republic Bank. And it was, it was worrisome, it was, you know, the markets were, were trying to determine, are we in a banking crisis? I, I don't know that that question's ever been answered. And so I thought I would hear, we would start with here in the perspective of all of our panelists, because all of your firms were around in 2008, which was our last major banking crisis, and there's been a lot of comparisons to, to, to 2008. So I'd like to hear from our three panelists, what's you guys were all around in 2008, what's different this time versus 2008. And Tom, you're to my right, so we're going to start with you. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think this is similar to 2008 for a number of reasons. I think 
the asset quality in 2008 was you know, subprime mortgages and a bunch of CDOs and CLOs, and this is, you know, most of these banks are buying government securities, and it's, you know, SVB was a management mishap with respect to duration on securities. Uh, I think underwriting standards today within banks are substantially different than they were back in that time. I mean, I think back then, if a deal didn't work, you added more I.O. to make the DSCR work, and, you know, your underwriting vacant office space is worth more than occupied office space. So the underwriting standards are totally different than they were in 2008, 2009. In addition, like the Federal Reserve right now is, you know, they're currently you know, tightening or holding rates. Back then, they were cutting rates, a lot of quantitative easing. So there's a completely different spectrum with the Federal Reserve as well as with the employment picture. In America, it's 3.4%. It was 5 or 7, you know, 5 or 7 percent back then. So. Yeah, I mean, when I think about your first question, are we in a banking crisis? Um, you know, I think we have to kind of move away from that narrative of crisis and, you know, really, like, lift the hood, peel back the onion on the strength, the stability, and the diversification of the financial institutions that you're banking with. So from my perspective at Bank of America, you know, we have a $3 trillion balance sheet. Um, we have one, tr uh, yeah, one uh, trillion in loans, and then we have $2 trillion in deposits. And so that's from all of our eight lines of business. When you look down a layer and you look at commercial real estate, commercial real estate is about $100 billion. So I said another way, 10% of loans at Bank of America are commercial real estate. When you look down another layer, specifically at office, office is 2%. And that office typically is underwritten at you know, a 55% loan to value. It um, is 75% Class A. So no doubt, you know, there is there's so many challenges, and we will get through those. But when I think about, you know, the, the word crisis, the other thing that comes into play are the, you know, the wall of maturities or the upcoming debt, which is, is a challenge, right? It's a challenge for a lot of institutions, ourselves included. Um, in a typical year, you know, we have about $20 billion that matures. Uh, that typically is about like a 40% payoff rate due to refinancing or asset sales, and we're not seeing that. And so it's no surprise that you know, recycling of capital is not happening, uh, which is causing a lot of institutions not to be able to originate. So when we started you know, 2023, um, that 40% payoff rate went to about 2%. So again, said another way, 98% of the maturing debt is sticking around and we're doing the right thing. We're showing up for our clients. We are modifying transactions. But to me, that kind of funnels into the crisis, the headlines, um, what we're all going through. And then to your second question on um, how is it different from 2008, you know, three things come to mind. Um, interest rates, vastly different. Leverage, vastly different. Um, but the biggest differentiator for us is our sponsorship. And so the client selectivity and who we are doing business with now are top sponsors, sophisticated sponsors, and people who have been through cycles. So, I don't know what I can add to those two, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I do think 2008, there was an asset quality issue. Uh, I think there were asset, as, as Tom alluded to, you know, they were underwritten off pro forma, 
we also had the credit default swap market. You had conduits and, and sort of these non-perfect hedges out there, and all these things going on in the capital markets that were derivative-based that really kind of created assets out of vapor. You know, you could securitize a pool of, of loans, but then you could also underwrite basically insurance on that on the bonds you just issued and sell that ten times over. So you could completely recycle every loan you were doing or figure out a derivative based on one asset. And it, you know, as Sam Zell used to say, it's trading sardines. These were not, these were not eating sardines. Um, that was 2008, and you also didn't have as much equity in the market. I think since then, obviously, we have a ton of equity that's been invested in these assets, and that's a big difference from 2008, and I think something that's going to help us this time around. I think what we're experiencing right now is really maybe more of a mark-to-market play where we've all been addicted to low interest rates since the pan or since you know effectively the GFC and then through the pandemic it happened again that maybe we should have started rolling off on. And I was at a conference in March, literally one week before Silicon Valley Bank started, and it was a borrowers conference where they had an old retired Fed governor, he's not that old actually, he's a lot younger than I am, but he's a Fed governor from New York. And he, and he spoke to us and he said, in order to get inflation under check, the short rates need to be higher than the inflation rate for at least 18 to 24 months. And everybody kind of let out a sigh because we knew that the inflation rate was over 5%. And at that point it was like pushing six. And so if you think about that and you say, okay, here's the, here are these interest rates, that creates an amazing dynamic of a reset on value on, you know, where does capital go? Where can it go get a 6% return when they were building five and a half? Well, now you can go somewhere else pretty easily and you could have a, a three-day trading window uh, for settlement versus, you know, having to invest in something and take months or years to get your, your value back. But I think that's a huge difference that we're going through right now compared to the GFC, but there's been a lot of equity in the market, but I think we've got a big reset going on right now. Great. Um, Darcy, I'm going to come back to you for this next one. So um, you guys were a regulated financial institution, OCC mm -hmm. regulated, I believe. And, you know, what I remember from the 2008 crisis was there was a lot of banks that wanted to lend or to help their clients, but they were just under a ton of regulatory pressure. And mm -hmm. I remember clients that said, well, I've made every payment. Why is my loan classified? And they're like, well, sorry, the regulators classified it. So what are, what are you guys feeling from the regulators right now? Where are they focused in commercial real estate? Yeah, I mean, there's no question there's enhanced regulatory oversight, especially since all of the events of this year. Um, most recently, at the end of the second quarter, there was new guidance released by the feds on accommodations for any workout loans. And so I think the key point there is that guidance had not been updated since 2009, so for 14 years. And um, really what it outlines is for financial institutions to be you know, measured and pragmatic when working with sponsors for distressed assets. And it further outlines you know, short-term um, extensions, partial deferrals, and partial repayment. And then the other piece of regulatory guidance that most everyone probably saw was at the end of July and the enha enhanced capital requirements for any institution over 100 billion in assets. And so while that's a proposal, and that proposal would not be enacted until, I believe, 2028, um, I think overall we know uh, the known is regulatory oversight is increasing. The unknown is 
exactly what it will effectuate as. Okay. And Tom and Paul, I know you guys are regulated differently, but I know you also have a really good handle on your portfolios. What are you seeing in your portfolios and what are you kind of projecting for the next 18 to 24 months as far as any deterioration? But, I mean, so um, we re-underwrote we re our portfolio on a quarterly basis and we re-underwrote our entire multifamily book. And I would say that is holding up very well. Um, on the office side, just nationally, we you know, wrote loans in 2018, 2019 that were office buildings that were underperforming that were going to perform better. COVID didn't help that, and um, so we're taking a handful of office assets back across the country. Uh, I think that that theme of modifying office loans is going to continue. We're seeing it on some of our life code book as well, where we're seeing modifying loans that need more time. So I think that's going to continue over the next 18 to 24 months. Uh, other asset classes have all performed really well. I mean, industrial is loosed up, and the demand for industrial in Texas is outstanding. Uh, and multifamily is doing well as well. Yeah, I'd say our, uh, depends on the, the portfolio we're talking about. I would say the core portfolio, which many people would maybe call our general account, but it's not necessarily just the general account, uh, that actually, you know, performing very well. I think, you know, I'll just throw it out there. It's the elephant in the room. A, every lender that's out there today that knows if they have a loan on the office, on an office building, the borrower's choice for recapping that office building is to go back to their lender and try to strike a new deal when that one comes due because lenders really aren't trading office assets and saying, oh, I'll take out that deal from that lender. You know, it's really more of a musical chairs and the chairs ran out. Um, but I would say that the portfolio overall has actually performed pretty well. I think supply and demand has been in balance. Um, as you get into the more of the core plus space and what, what Tom was saying, the that's where he and I compete a little bit in that space where we're doing you know, floating rate, higher yielding business. Again, yeah, I, I echo that. Yeah, you're going to take back some office deals or maybe some deals that fell flat or demand didn't really pan out quite the way you wanted. Uh, either those are going to get a serious recap or have to be extended or something's going to be worked out or they'll be foreclosed upon. But, but overall, I, I feel pretty good about it. I don't think that, that, those are very few and far between between because the amount of equity that went into the deals originally. And I think some of the equity sponsors realize that maybe with time, it's going to heal some wounds. Okay. I'd say though that we get out ahead of a lot of those deals, 18 months, almost two years out, and trying to work with sponsors on them. And most of them, it's, you know, we're not foreclosing. It's due to the damage to fees and you know, they have putting the flag up and saying we should end them. So it's a pretty friendly. I think a lot of people learned a lot from 2008. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like people are much more proactive yeah. this cycle than we were last cycle. And I would, I would add, too, you know, our sponsors are coming to us, right? Yeah. We're working together, and we're already looking into 2024 and even 2025 mm -hmm. in some instances, and people want to talk, and if it's the right time now to go ahead and modify and extend or whatever the situation, we're open to that. Okay. So all three of you have mentioned interest rates. Um, and so, you know, it used to be if it worked at 8%, it kind of worked. I mean, especially when you were lending money at 3 to 4%, then you'd stress test it somewhere between 6 and 8 And if it worked at all those, it worked. We're now above 8% um, on a floating prime rate basis, I believe. So, so a couple questions. What are you guys testing at when you're testing debt service coverage or when you're underwriting? What kind of interest rate scenarios are you using? And when you make loans, what type of interest rate protection are you requiring from your client? And I'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I'd say in the core bucket, it's, it's, you know, we're a fixed rate lender there for the most part. 
And even before all this, and when rates were, you know, if we were lending money at three or three and a half percent there for a couple of years, we were still stressing it on the back end at around a six and a half percent interest rate with a 30 year amp. And we really didn't want to go below, say, a 125 coverage on that number. And it was easy to do so because the rates were three or three and a half percent. Um, right now, we really haven't changed that that significantly. Um, our our belief is really that when you look at the U.S. growth rate, if we can get inflation under check, and if you have a real growth rate of say, you know, two percent, and your inflation's two percent, well, that's you know four four percent Treasury. Then you got the spread over that. Well, historical spreads have not been two fifty over or anything. So we feel pretty good that that's still a pretty good stress um, constant. But we're seeing deals, you know, the acquisitions today where you know, you're lucky to get to a 50% loan based on that, that metric. Um, the, on on the, uh, the floating rate side, we're really looking more at the exit caps and where we think those might go. And so if we're exiting somewhere around an eight uh, cap rate on the, on the value of the asset, we can get the debt out and the debt yield around eight, I think we feel pretty good about it. Okay. And, and Tom, before you answer, you'd made the comment before when we were talking back there that I think I'd like to incorporate as well, because it's not just interest rates aren't the only cost that's increasing. Insurance has, for, for a lot of clients, I've talked to some insurance agents prior to this in their commercial book, and they're seeing an average of 30 to 50% increase per year. So if you're in commercial real estate, it's likely your insurance costs have doubled over the past two years. Obviously, personnel costs went up. Um, so it's like the whole operating income side, <laughs> the operating income yeah, I mean, I'd say increased like, dramatically. What does that do to your underwriting? On that, I mean, I think we underwrote our multifamily book, like I said, and on average, rents outperformed where we performed them, which was great. However, uh, taxes and insurance in most markets were you know, missed on that. Those were high. Net-net, we're still probably where we thought we were going to be. But there's an example. We had a deal in DFW where the insurance was 500 a door. And they just re-upped their policy, and it's now 800 a door, and there's you know, a couple hundred grand in the bottom line. That, you know, all of a sudden, got hit there, and so we're seeing that across all of our regions. And I think you know what we did, you know, as a you know, due to that increase, we basically have a sensitivity now in all of our deals as far as like if expenses go up five percent, ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, to figure out what the corresponding debt yield and DNCR and LTV are for those deals, assuming that expenses go up that much. We'll get back to our Market Matters panel discussion in just a bit, but first, a quick reminder that North Texas Giving Day is this Thursday, September 21st. This year, Trek Community Investors is working to raise $25,000 toward its neighborhood revitalization efforts throughout the North Texas area, and we are well on our way to achieving that goal, but we need your help. Your contributions support initiatives like the Dallas Catalyst Project and our commercial real estate loan program, as well as educational programs that benefit our nonprofit partners and emerging housing and small business developers throughout the DFW area. You can donate now during the final days of the early giving period through Thursday, September 21st, which is the official North Texas Giving Day. Learn more at NorthTexasGivingDay.org and search for Trek Community Investors to find our page and make your donation today. Now, let's get back to the show.
I know we always talk about it, Trek. We're big believers in DFW. We think it's the best market in the country to be in right now. And so when you read articles like in the Wall Street Journal about the state of the commercial real estate industry, there's one that comes to mind where they said nationally multifamily values have fallen 14% in the past 12 months, but yet it doesn't feel that way in DFW. I mean, you still see tons of Class A units going under construction. You still see tons of acquisition. Do you all look at this market in particular differently? Do you underwrite for DFW differently than you underwrite for other parts of the country? Um, I, I can start. Uh, we, you know, when we're underwriting, we're looking at that entire, you know, call it $100 billion book, measuring that um, all consistently. So we're not giving, um, even though Dallas-Fort Worth, amazing employment growth, amazing population growth, we are kind of benchmarking the entire portfolio at the same rate. And for us, at, at Bank of America, you know, typically, um, we've been consistent across the board, you know, six and a half or 6% 30 year, um, 818 constant, which, you know, historically, I guess the last 10 plus years, that's been the benchmark we've used. That's increased to more like a seven and a quarter 30 year. And so what that results in is about a 10 six debt yield. Okay. So, um, it's vastly different from where we were. And I wish we could give uh, Dallas a little bit of, uh, of a break, but we're consistent across the board. Okay. Tom or Paul, any different? I mean, I think we're, we're very, very bullish on DFW. We've got a number of deals that we've closed here. We're working on a couple of other ones right now in the credit equity space, as well as on the fixed and floating rate side. So we're very bullish on DFW. I'd say, like, one of your questions on the underwriting side, we used to underwrite. We don't underwrite for better or for worse based on DSR. We underwrite based on debt yield. Um, kind of the first question that we look at when writing a loan is, will we want to own it at this basis? It's not our business, but that's kind of how we look at it. And so um, you know, we were underwriting high fives, low sixes, debt yields in most markets. I'd say that's moved up to seven and a half to eight debt yields in most markets. And Dallas is probably like a seven and a half. And you think you know, on a bad day, a deal, a multifamily deal trade, five and a half, six. So there's plenty of room between what our last dollar is and what kind of trade. So. Yeah, I'd say our debt yields may not differ all that dramatically, but maybe the way we underwrite the cash flows do. I think Dallas has, has benefited from the growth, and we take that into account when we're underwriting. But we, we underwrite nationally on a very local basis, basically for that market, for that submarket. Uh, but, you know, insurance, taxes, everything else, you know, where the rest of the country may not have the tax issue that we do. I would say there are people in this room that know this. If, if you're getting your tax assessed value, you know, in, in early May, there's this window from like early May till July where it's really hard to close a loan on an apartment deal or a new property that just got reassessed because the initial assessments come out way taller than I am. And, <laughs> and then they got to get negotiated down. But if you're, you know, if you're an agency lender or if you're a, you know, anybody that's trying to underwrite cash flow, you're like, well, here's what it says, but we all know it ends up less. And, it, and it's just this mind game of, like, capital movement where it freezes for a bit. So that's that's a frustration, maybe, that we see here underwriting on a local level. Yeah. Maybe there's frustration. Um, so, Darcy, you've said a couple things that I wanted to circle back to. One... Um, you alluded to the amount of debt maturing. And, um, you know, the most recent statistic I read, it's, um, I think we've got $750 billion 
maturing in the next two years, so three quarters of a trillion dollars of debt maturing in the, in the next two years. And then you alluded to the kind of the, some of the recent regulatory guidance that came out, which has been really positive, um, which sounds really positive because, you know, <laughs> to your point, only 2% of these are just refinancing. So um, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Actually, let me start with Tom on it, though. Kind of what's the difference of working with an insurance company versus a bank versus a conduit in some of these scenarios? Or, or even like, or even the worst scenario where it's not just matured, but you've triggered a default somewhere along the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I worked at Deutsche Bank for 10 years, and we had you know, special servicers, and anyone in this room has ever tried to do anything with a special service or um, good luck. It's, uh, you know, you're calling usually some kid probably right out of college in Kansas City, and they, you know, have no idea about your deal, who you are, or the loan, or whatever, whereas opposed to a life insurance company, they actually have a relationship with you, they're going to pick up the phone, they're going to proactively try and work with you, and we're actively modifying deals on our side, on our life insurance book, and so it's night and day. Okay. All any different? Yeah, I'd say yeah. The yeah, the conduit business is more about the legal side, and the and the you know the servicers' agreements and the master and special servicer and all that. The life company side, you definitely have a relationship, and I think the communication has always been a little bit better on that side. Yeah, just the frequency of borrower discussions or asset reviews uh, tends to be a little bit better. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a couple more questions, and I want to definitely want to make some time to take questions for the audience. But I want to get a little further down in the weeds here. So, um, so you know, the community, a lot of the community banks are struggling. Obviously, they are under. To your point, the ones 100 billion and above are under increased regulatory pressure. Um, you know, there was an article that said KKR and Blackstone Community Trust has made zero new originations this year. Um, so, I, so I guess the first question is, who's actually lending? It sounds like from some of the comments you've made, Paul, you guys are still lending, but I'd like to hear from each of you your appetite for, for new deals right now. Yeah, I mean, look, we're still lending. We're doing bridge lending, construction lending, fixed rate lending, uh, as well as preferred equity. And then we have a sleeve of capital that buys risk retention bonds and some classic securizations. We're closing a data center deal right now in the market. So we're active on all of our uh, programs. On the construction side, I'd say we probably have, you know, um, for context, we did about seven billion of lending last year. This year, I don't know, we'll probably get around five or so. But we're we're in the process of closing a billion plus of new deals across the country. So we're we're actively lending on all those projects. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, you know, we have a large amount of maturing debt coming due, and we've worked through about half of that with our customers. And so um, it's pretty simple. If we're not getting paid off on, say, that $20 billion, we can't re-lend it out to the market. And so until we see some you know, stabilization, I think, with cap rates and you know, with interest rates, it's going to be challenging, if not near impossible, to really focus on new originations. That being said, um, I do feel there's a misnomer in the market that we're completely shut down. That's not the case. We're just focusing and showing up for our customers on the maturities there is a small, you know, crack in the door that we are looking at new opportunities. But to my earlier point on the debt yield, it does have to fit inside that box, um, especially just considering all of the regulatory oversight that we're in right now. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let that one go. Just not really to add significantly there. I think we covered it. Okay. Um, so for the loans that are getting made today, kind of what are they? You've talked about debt yields a little bit different, but what else is different structure-wise? Is it 
you know, obviously more equity in those cases, but are there other things that have changed that will make you a loan, but this is what the terms look like now? Yeah, I mean, I'd say if you ratchet up your debt yield from six to seven and a half, that's going to just result in a lower loan to cost. So we were, you know, call it 75, 80 percent, you know, during 2021. Uh, we're now probably closer to 65 or 70 percent LTV, LTC, okay. and stuff like that. Across the board or specific product types? I'd say probably across the board. The other change in the market that happened, there was a short duration that it happened, but uh, Perry funding with the equity that was happening on some deals, and we did a couple of those. Uh, I'd say now funding, particularly on construction lending, is now sequential funding. So we're seeing the equity's got to go in first and then keep the debt. And so that's another change kind of that's happened in the market over the last Okay. Paul? Yeah, I think. You know, as we, as we put our money out, as we're able to be selective, I think that um, the type of debt yields that we're underwriting today are very consistent with where we were before, but they're higher due to that stress test, as I mentioned before. Um, but, you know, overall, I, I'd say, you know, spreads are up. You know, we're lending very well and uh, don't really see much changing. You know, it's kind of, we're an averaging lender when you go year to year in the market. And I think that's just going to continue to roll. We've got a little bit over $110 billion of mortgages at this point. And that's a pretty, pretty consistent process of rolling and recapping and seeing things. But it's, you know, every, every deal is a new deal. But we are being more selective today, I would say. Yeah, I think it's probably a lot less competitive lending environment um, than it was. 12 months ago. And to yeah. Tom's point on leverage, um, historically, right, we would show up around the 60, 65% LTC. Um, now, given where we are from a, a debt yield requirement, that typically shows up as, you know, maybe 45, 50, 55 on a loan to cost basis. So vastly different from where we were one year ago. And that, yeah, I, I agree. That's, mm -hmm. that's the frustrating thing is that you're looking at something and you say, okay, I can get to this debt yield that I've been lending on. But when you look at the overall capitalization of the deal, the borrowers are like, gosh, I need a lot more equity. Yeah. But what, what's happening, though, is you get a lot, you know, say maybe, you know, we're coming out with meds. And so we've come behind construction loans with mezzanine financing, which is kind of a new change for us. But we see that opportunity. And it, it may stay open for a while. It may go away. Maybe it turns into preferred equity, uh, which we, we would also be able to do. Um, but it's the capitalization of the deal changes. Uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I'd say like we've had a number of deals this year that we've closed where our last dollar from the credit bucket is whatever, 65, 70%, and then there's preferred equity behind us, and usually not us, it's usually somebody else in the market okay. providing preferred equity behind us. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. To pay off deals. Okay, let's take some questions from the audience. Anybody have anything they want to ask? I think we've got. I don't know, Travis, do we have a mic or anything? Anyone? Stunned in the silence. Yeah. <laughs> Either that boring or that comprehensive, I don't know. Okay, well, we'll keep, we'll keep going then. Um, so, and this can kind of, we'll give you each a shot to answer this, but knowing everything we know, you know, kind of, and don't have to give your opinions on everything, but just think about the trajectory of interest rates, just think about the population growth of DFW, think about three quarters of a trillion dollars of debt maturing 
in 2023 and 2024. What does the Dallas commercial real estate market look like in, in 2025, in your opinion? I'll jump in there. I, I, I think, yeah, you kind of regress to the mean, right? But if you look at the, the slope of our growth, I don't see that ending. I, I think, you know, the Texas, you know, economy, the incentives we have, you know, the, the real estate environment we're in, the, just the overall governments and, and or governance, I, I think we're an attractive place to move to. We're an attractive place to run a business. And that growth maybe was spurred by the pandemic or the awareness of that or the awareness of maybe, maybe where other locations, what they weren't, you know, in a bad environment has helped us. And, but I think because of that, obviously we've had a lot of development. And so when I say regress to the mean, I think vacancy rates will be higher. Rents might continue to go up, but there'll be more, there's, there's more supply. And, and we've had a tremendous amount of supply being added here compared to the rest of the country. And so I think that kind of has a way of averaging out, but it's been very good. And I don't really see that, I don't see any huge shocks to Dallas. It would have to be a shock or have to be something totally out of left field to change that. Okay. No, when I, I think about, I go back to the population growth, the unemployment growth, and if you kind of dial back to the 80s and you looked at the population, I think we were around three to four million, and now we're about you know, seven, eight, eight, six, six to seven. Um, I don't see that slowing down. Uh, to Paul's earlier point, there's a lot of supply, but I think we are the benefactor of a lot of people moving here for, for the jobs, for the climate, um, for everything that Dallas is. So I see positive, um, continued positive growth. As far as you know, the debt markets, I do think you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, we will see a normalization of values, which to me, if, when, once we have that normalization, that opens the door on repayments, it opens the door on new originations, and just gets that flywheel starting to turn a little bit faster. Uh, I mean, I think very bullish on DFW. I think that the uh, multifamily market has absorbed a number of units. I think that you know, construction is going to steal just with the capital markets by 2025. It should you know, normalize with a normal pace. I think the only area of concern probably is DFW is on older office buildings. Like, what are they going to do in some of the suburban office buildings? That's going to be a challenge. That's not just DFW. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, I, think, I think that's going to be yeah. a concern nationwide. Yeah. Okay, uh, one last shot from the audience. Any any questions for the panel? There we go. Good morning. Uh, so, with respect to monetary policy, uh, you know, I think it was just last night the UAE and Saudi Arabia announced that they would be joining BRICS, and we're seeing uh, you know the rise in energy costs, delayed impact on CPI. What's the position of each of your respective firms on monetary policy and if the Fed will keep rates higher for longer? Uh, I'm not an economist, but I, I expect the Fed to keep rates higher for longer. I mean, Jackson is happening today, so we'll learn more later today, but I think rates will stay higher for longer. Can we expect one uh, additional 25 basis point increase this year and, um, again, I don't have my crystal ball with me, but my guess is 
the first half of 24 is higher, and, and maybe you see a de decrease um, second half of 24, but again, it's unknown. Yeah, I, I think higher for longer, personally, I think the, you know, the inflation's still there. The Fed is on top of that, trying to bring it down. you got two things working against each other. You've got costs going up, and maybe it slowed down many parts of the economy because costs are up and they can't get it financed, or the it's too much equity. It has to be invested, and the returns can't be met. But yet you've got this government stimulus that's still hanging out there that hasn't expired. And so if you're a contractor or a supplier of goods, uh, not just services, but actually just the manufactured product, there's another whole demand curve right there you can go chase. So if you've got comp concrete prices that don't work for real estate, go, go build a highway. You know, so I think concrete prices could stay up. So I think that kind of funnels into the higher for longer premise. Other question? I've got a question for the audience. How many of you have mandatory four days in the office in Dallas, Texas? Four days. Four days. How many have three days? Mandatory. Two. Not, no, no mandatory. Five. How about five days? Five days. <laughs> oh, there you go. Office. Uh, there you go. Um, let me ask a follow-up question on the interest rate thing, though, because um, you know, prior to two thousand eight, when rates got cut dramatically, I mean, the economy kind of worked at eight percent, at eight percent prime rate. If we had rates for longer for years and years, the economy work in the current interest rate cycle? I mean, is it, if rates hold right now for the next three to five years, does the economy work? What's your opinion? I, I just, I feel interest rates are a um, temporary impairment, right? And so uh, once we have normalization, and maybe it is normal now, um, we all need to adapt. And so again, where I can lend versus where Tom lends versus where Paul lends, like we still have um, capital, it might be finite at this point in time, but um, I think you know the economy can still move on, can still move forward based upon where we are. It's just the rearview mirror. People keep looking back, and we've had a um, artificially low environment with interest rates forever. for so long it feels like forever. that it's hard to change. Right? Yeah. People talk about change. We all are up for change, but it's hard to change. Yeah. So. Those low interest rates poured gasoline on the economy and it really took off. But given the size of the U.S. economy, if you had a growth rate of 2 to 3%, that's, that's really pretty good. Yeah. Given the overall size, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of growth. But because of that, if you've got any inflation, and if the target's too, maybe, maybe four's the new normal. I mean, we shouldn't really think we're going to go get the gasoline thrown back on the fire. That's that, you know, yeah. kind of like credit fault swaps. That was just a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, one last one last opportunity, and if not, we'll thank our panelists. Oh, we got one back here. Uh, good morning. Uh, appreciate the panel's time. I have a question around the multifamily space. Uh, I know Paul and, and Tom, you guys do a lot of bridged agency executions and did so during 21-22. Curious on how borrowers are thinking about you know, having agency execution done, you see them step in in turbulent times or with higher higher index rates, you know, do you see borrowers wanting to have that <clears throat> get permed up right now or seek out other solutions? 
Uh, I'd say for us, what we're focusing a tremendous amount of energy on is providing preferred equity behind the agencies, where the agencies are you know, sizing things. It's a lot lower than where they were historically. And so with that, there needs to be kind of some gap equity. There's a lot of folks out there in that space. Uh, for us, our minimum deal size for preferred equity is 30 million, so kind of whale hunting, if you will. But uh, that's the space I think we need to make some money. Right. I think there's still a play on the affordable side because of where the agencies are willing to lend and, and mark down their, their spreads in order to accommodate that. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it creates a recapitalization or a product of equity to come in and kind of fill that gap. And I see that probably being a part of the market segment of growth. Okay, let's have a round of applause for our panelists. That is all for today's show. I'd like to thank our Market Matters moderator, Rob Bowlby of Global Pro, and our panelists, Darcy Barnes of Bank of America, Tom Burns of Affinius Capital, and Paul Geyer of PGIM Real Estate for discussing the future of the lending market. I'd also like to recognize and thank Grant Thornton, Global Pro, and DCEO for sponsoring and supporting our Market Matters event series. Subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts and follow Trek and Trek Community Investors on social media for the latest from around the two organizations. And remember to make your North Texas Giving Day donation to Trek Community Investors now through the big day on Thursday, September 21st, and help us reach our $25,000 goal. You can learn more and find our donation page at NorthTexasGivingDay.org. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.